Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Kupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. As you listen to this, we are one week away from the first ever live Majority 54 event. I'm very excited about it. I told True about it last night, and he was like... That many people are coming? I, his, actually, funny, very cute. His exact words were, how famous are you and mom? Like, <laughs> which was pretty <laughs> funny. Um, so Drew is very excited about it. It's going to be June 24th, so Thursday, June 24th, uh, in Loose Park here in Kansas City. Quote, unquote, doors open. It's an outdoor event at 7 p.m. For more information, which is to say to get a ticket, which is free, basically to RSVP and let us know you're coming, you want to visit wondermedianetwork.com slash majority 54 event wondermedianetwork.com slash majority 54 event there, there are more details there at the site but one thing i want to emphasize is you know the park's not letting us like serve food or anything like that so it's byof bring your own food bring your own chairs if you don't want to sit on one of the benches at the pavilion just bring your stuff it's a picnic an outdoor event you know it's a post covid ish world celebration uh come on come out and have a good time with that said ravi what's going on well, Jason, it's rule of law week here at Majority 54. There are just so many news items this week just related to preserving our democracy. And we'll start with uh, yesterday, uh, and we're recording on Wednesday, the Biden administration released a 32-page strategy to coordinate efforts across the government for domestic terrorism. You know, this calls for a lot of things that were kind of already underway, but he he packaged it all together to tell a story about where we are as a country. And it calls for new spending at the Justice Department uh, and to hire new FBI analysts to examine the issue, investigators, prosecutors, greater information sharing between government agencies and local partners. And this comes shortly after the FBI director told Congress that the Bureau had made close to 500 arrests in connection with the Capitol attack. And he said that the number of domestic terrorism investigations has increased to 2,000 from 1,400 at the end of last year. So it seems like we're about to double at least this year, um, the amount of domestic terrorism investigations uh, from last year. Jason, you served in Afghanistan to combat terrorism abroad. What does it mean that we're in this place where we have so much homegrown terrorism? So I look at this as an intelligence officer, right? I mean, it's a simple threat assessment. It's actually, and people forget this, it's actually an aberration when homegrown terrorism isn't the greatest threat. So like from the mid-90s to the early 2010s, that was a huge aberration because at every other point in our history, the threat of terrorism, not attacks by foreign nation states, but actual terrorist networks within our borders was 
much less of a threat than domestic terrorists, right? So the threat of international terrorism has historically always been much less than the threat of, of domestic terrorism here. Like international terrorism, it's hard to perpetrate. I mean, you have to penetrate a society. You have to plan an attack when you already stand out. Domestic terrorism is frighteningly easy and is frighteningly common. Consider this. We've had 46 presidents. There have been assassination attempts against six of them. Four of them have been assassinated, not to mention RFK, MLK, Malcolm X, Harvey Milk. I mean, there's a long list of leaders in American history who have been assassinated. You you can go from consider anything from decades of lynchings to the Oklahoma City Federal Building. Domestic terrorism has nearly always been the greatest terrorist threat in the United States. If you're Working to try to convince someone of this and to try and, I guess, sort of get them off of the instinct of thinking that the greatest threat of terrorism is going to be from somebody who comes here from another country, I would describe it to them as if it's another country. I would say something like, look, Taiwan had an election last year and the Democratic Progressive Party won. Let's say that you read in the paper that Taiwanese supporters of the losing candidate at the behest of the losing candidate stormed the capital in Taiwan. They ransacked offices. They beat police officers. They killed one of them. And they even flew the Chinese flag on the floor of parliament. Meanwhile, every few weeks, you read about someone with a far out conspiracy theory in Taiwan getting a gun and killing dozens of Taiwanese people. And then in the states that are controlled by the opposition in Taiwan, it turns out that they're trying really hard to shut down democracy and get rid of free and fair elections. You wouldn't say Taiwan has a problem with domestic terrorism. You'd say that place is full of terrorists. That place isn't safe to visit. You would think it's just a matter of time before it devolved into like an all out civil war. And most of all, you'd wonder what the government of Taiwan is doing to get a hold of things. And then imagine how silly it would sound if someone explained to you that the big debate in Taiwan was whether they were doing enough to protect themselves from people from other countries. So to me, domestic terrorism has always been, with the exception of a few years, the main terrorist threat in the country. And we're just going back to what is usually the case. And we have to take it seriously. Right. You know, I think it depends on when you were born, right? If you came of age in the 90s, as the two of us did, you remember Oklahoma City, you remember Waco, you remember like that there were just a lot of the precursors to what we're seeing to today, this, this anti-government conspiracy theorizing where tons of innocent people were killed. And that doesn't mean that there isn't an international terrorism concern. It's just that as you said, like the numbers just bear it out right now that that we need to be placing a much greater emphasis than we are on domestic terrorism. And I know what the right wing is going to do. They're going to take sound bites like these and say, you don't care about international terrorism. And then they will seize upon the inevitable attack that's perpetrated from people abroad and say that we were misplaced in our focus on domestic terrorism, but we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We've got to do both. And obviously, we've spent the past 20 plus years considerably augmenting our response to international terrorism and making a bunch of sloppy mistakes and encroaching on human rights in, in cases that weren't necessary. And we had a huge national debate about that, all while we kind of neglected the debate here internally. And I think that's why we find ourselves with uh, a growing problem here. To pick up where you left off there, it's really important to remind people that a big part of the reason that international terrorism is 
is not as significant of a threat to the United States right now as it was is because we took it really seriously. I mean, you started this by asking about, you know, my time in Afghanistan and how it relates to this. Well, yeah, you're like exactly right. Like people like me went over there and served and like we were going after al-Qaeda and we were trying to deny a safe haven from which they could attack the United States. So we took it seriously. We combated it. It's not over. It's not done with, but it's seriously degraded. And on top of that, the other thing you got to remember is that if you look at a lot of the quote unquote international terrorism that's been perpetrated in the United States over the last several years, things like the Fort Hood shooting, stuff like that, a lot of that was stuff where it was inspired by international terrorists. But a lot of those uh, events were perpetrated by people who were here domestically, not all of whom came from another country, right? And you could argue uh, that that was a domestic terrorist but also international terrorism. So even in those cases, there's some element of domestic terrorism in it. But but I think the most important point as to how to argue for why this is such an important thing to prioritize is that, yes, we took international terrorism extremely seriously. We still do. And it's made a huge difference. We, we have fortunately not had another 9-11. Like, shouldn't we take a similar strategy, at least in our prioritization, probably not our tactics, but our prioritization of domestic terrorism. Shouldn't that be what we learn from it? What's amazing to me is that in, not, in the aftermath of 9-11, there was one view, really, which is that al-Qaeda is evil and we need to take them out. Now, there probably should have been more of a nuanced view about how we went about that process. But the the sense that we were all in this together there may have been one or two straight Congress people who made outlandish statements, um, but by and large, both parties came together. George W. Bush's approval rating soared, uh, and our country was united. Uh, united in some some cases, some really dumb policy, but we were united. Uh, the House just recently um, passed legislation that would give the the highest congressional honor to Capitol police officers who responded to the insurrection. There were 21 members who voted against that. Jason, just a wild guess as to what party those members belong to. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go with not green. Yeah, yeah, they're not the Green Party, not the Libertarians. It was the Republicans. This would have been unfathomable after 9-11. Um, and this gets it to- It would have been like career-ending and like not just career, like you'd never get another job. And these are the people who talk about law enforcement left and right. They get all the law enforcement endorsements. Uh, and when there were people sworn to protect their lives and put themselves on the line for that, they can't vote to give them a congressional honor um, because they don't want to signal to conspiracy theories, theorists who support them the wrong thing. I just don't get it, Jason. And I, we need to exact political consequences for this. No, I, I completely agree. And But in the meantime, I think it's really important to get across to people that this fight, like Merrick Garland's announcement, this is every bit as big of a deal as uh, the fight to take on Al-Qaeda. Um, this is, you know, where this is right now is this is post the first World Trade Center bombing and post the uh, USS Cole. That's what this is. This is what if we had taken Al-Qaeda as seriously pre 9-11 as we did post 9-11. And we have an opportunity to do that right now in the United States. And anybody who's failing to do that is failing to protect the country. Speaking of people who are sworn to protect the country, William Barr stepped down in December 
but right before he did that, um, there are new emails that just came out that show that the president of the United States at the time, uh, Donald Trump, began pressuring Barr's eventual replacement. Uh, and he was pressuring, um, and this was Jeffrey Rosen, um, was the replacement. He was pressuring Rosen, uh, who is the incoming acting attorney general, to back up Trump's false claims of election fraud. And there's just tons of documents showing this now. And none of it's totally surprising. I almost didn't even want to talk about it. But that in and of itself is a kind of a symptom of the problem here. This would be like Watergate level stuff in any normal situation. But I think we've become so numb, Jason, to these types of stories that we almost don't even pay attention to it. But these are norm eroding major threats to our democracy. I know that there's very little people sitting around the table in, you know, on July 4th with their family members are really going to do with this information. But where, where should we place this in, in the sort of pantheon of Trump abuses of his office? To me, it's a couple of things as to how we should think about it. One, I think it's a reminder to take the election stuff in the states extremely seriously. Just a reminder that there's no place they're not willing to go to. And so there's just no room to ignore any of the uh, shenanigans going on to try and uh, make it so that elections can actually be overturned by local officials. We have to take that stuff seriously because this is their MO. And then the other thing is we have to remember that just because you know we have the White House and therefore there are there's somebody like Mayor Garland in charge of the Justice Department right now that doesn't absolve us of our responsibility to put certain fields of fire restrictions or governors or whatever you want to call it like restrictor plates on institutions like that because the lesson that we need to learn from the four years that preceded the term we're in now is that we got really spoiled by the idea that our institutions would protect us when they won't. It seems like throughout history, anytime we've gotten really close to that kind of crisis, there's been at least one person who has the best interests of the country in mind, even if they're ideologically aligned with the other people, leading one of the institutions, and that's what stops it. And we didn't really have that. We may have sort of in some way had that at the Supreme Court with John Roberts, and that may have made a little bit of a difference, but we didn't really have it. We certainly didn't have it with McConnell. We had no, in no way had it with Trump. And we got really close to really bad things happening. And while we have power, it is an opportunity to put safeguards in place to give the Justice Department a more independent sort of guarantee for when you have something like this in the future again. Right. And I, and I know what, what people on the right are going to say, you know, that's the past. We need to look to the future. But he continues to be the leader of their party, enjoying tremendous popularity and is by far the front runner uh, for the nomination. It's really his for the taking unless uh, he decides not to run or ha has any you know personal crisis or legal crisis that prevents him from running. He will have that nomination. He dominates the party. And he dominates it so much that they removed Liz Cheney from leadership when she dared criticize him. And so they are a cult of personality in support of a guy who will step over every legal boundary possible. This is about ongoing efforts to subvert our democracy, and they stand explicitly for that. And they can't wiggle out of this. Like This needs to be front and center in the years to come because they are dangerous to our democracy. Well, and when you think about things like reforming the system as it exists now, even under the leadership that's there now, I mean, the argument to make, I guess, is like, 
what if the fictional Joe Biden that you all wanted to make us believe existed during the campaign were the actual Joe Biden? Like, how could you be against this, right? Like, you argue that this guy is a corrupt international figure who worked with his son to get paid all sorts of money. You try to imply that he's involved in, like, international assassination and corruption and sacking of world leaders. Like... If you believe that stuff, then you should agree with us that no matter who's in power, these safeguards should be put in place. Yeah, it's slippery. Whenever I talk to people in my life who are Trump supporters, their moves are, well, Clinton had the Chinese over, like Chinese donors in the Lincoln bedroom and pardoned Mark Rich, therefore, and then the therefore that comes after that is like, insane Insane, stuff like and it's just like there yes there are presidents over time who've done really bad things and if you create a list of every president who's ever existed and and only look at the really bad things they say and say now that's our permission structure then you're an effed up party it's it's really frustrating and it's it's so juvenile like these are adults in some cases with children in some cases in real positions of power their principals of school their police officers their teachers you know and it's like the fact that they're making these arguments while then turning around and and holding really important roles in society just makes me really scared about the future of our country. We've spent a lot of this episode talking about domestic terrorism and violence. I feel, and I think Ravi would agree, an obligation to the listeners to help you sleep after this. And so we're going to tell you about our sponsor, Helix Sleep, which has been helping us sleep, I mean, for like about a year now since we rebooted this pod. Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, Jason did too, and we were both matched independently with the Midnight Lux mattress because we sleep on our side. And I love it. Um, it's a huge upgrade over the mattresses I've used in the past. So if you're looking for a mattress, you could take the quiz, order a mattress that you're matched to, and the mattress comes right to your door, shipped for free. So just go to helixsleep.com majority 54 take their two minute sleep quiz and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life they have a 10-year warranty and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free so helix is offering up to 200 dollars off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com majority 54 that's helixsleep.com majority 54 for up to 200 dollars and two free pillows Kelly Corrigan Wonders is just the podcast we all need right now. It somehow manages to both validate what you're feeling and truly stretch your thinking at the same time. The show drops new episodes every Tuesday morning, and there are currently more than 40 episodes available covering everything from human nature and racial justice to grief and societal change and love stories. Guests include heavy hitters and big thinkers like Melinda Gates and George Saunders. She also introduces you to incredible stories from people you've never heard of and now can't stop talking about. And while the episodes cover topics that are far from light, they are explored in such an approachable, honest way that the door is open for real contemplation and transformation. Oh, and laughter. Kelly manages to be both poignant and hilarious at the same time. From what it sounds like, listeners love this show. It's got 4.9 out of 5 stars from 900 reviewers who are saying things like, I'm so encouraged and challenged by this beautiful podcast. Kelly's wit and wisdom challenged me to think critically and make me laugh. She's insanely relevant and hugely refreshing. So if you're looking for a really fulfilling listen, head over to Kelly Corrigan Wonders wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Well, speaking of people in positions of power, Senate, <laughs> Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Uh, minority Leader. Sorry, minority leader. I mean, we, it's just, just something to yeah. brighten the, the dark conversation we're having. Let's just let's shine a little bit of light back on in it. But yeah, minority leader, go. Minority leader Mitch McConnell, you know, said something that's not totally surprising, but it's worth taking note of. He was on, I think, the Hugh Hewitt show and said that he would likely block a Biden Supreme Court nominee in 2024, just like he did Garland with Biden. There's no indication that Breyer plans to retire that we know of as of today. Um, and we're not confirming a ton of judges yet because there were a lot of cabinet posts and other things up. And court expansion seems dead for now. And that's all while key Democratic senators like Manchin and Cinema keep talking about bipartisanship. And then here we have McConnell just flouting any sense of consistency or norms. So what do we do about this? Well, I think first, as we've said on here before, like we have to recognize, of course, he's going to try to block it, right? If he gets the chance. I mean, I, I think he said recently, maybe it was in that interview, right? That the most important thing he's ever done in public service is block that pick. So, I mean, like, yeah, he's going to do that again if he gets the chance. I think the thing to remember is just another reminder that we can't write off 2022. Like, we can hold the Senate. It's possible. It's very possible. But we have to put the pedal all the way down. Everybody kind of just acts like, well, look, what usually happens is you lose seats in a midterm and it's already 50-50. So everybody's acting as though we only have this period to get things done. I think we should legislate as best we can as if we only have these two years to legislate. But I think at the same time, start getting involved in uh, local elections with your candidates for Senate, with local groups that are doing work on the ground uh, to party build in the in the first place. Like facts and reality still matter. And like the economy is improving. People seem to like the direction the country is going. The pandemic response is now getting like rave reviews from both parties. Like Actually, if you look at the facts on the ground, we have a great case for gaining seats in the Senate, not losing them. And we should focus on doing that. Yeah, I, I continue to to think that, you know, like you're saying, like our, our focus needs to be on uh, improving the lives of Americans and telling a coherent story so that, you know, both that's like why you get elected in the first place is, is helping people, but also that will help us gain more power in a year and a half uh, and be able to do way more good. I'm feeling way better about the Senate than I am about the House, although Harry Etten at CNN, who, who hopefully we'll have on at some point, had a really good article last week that gives us reason for optimism. He's saying, like, look, this is not like, yes, there are huge uh, headwinds for Democrats in the House, but there are also pieces of data out there that say that Democrats could win additional seats or hold on to their seats. And basically, the game hasn't been played yet. Well, one more rule of law point. On Friday, House uh, lawmakers introduced sweeping antitrust legislation aimed at restraining the power of big tech and uh, staving off uh, corporate consolidation. There are five separate bills, and so we're not going to go through all of them today. But it's just notable that this was bipartisan. Um, traditionally increased antitrust enforcement, Jason, is a position of the left. And if I'm being honest, not consistently held on the left, which is why very little has been done. What should we make of the fact that this is bipartisan, this coalition? And does it feel real to you? Uh, not yet. I really want it to. You know, like I, I, I'm a big believer in antitrust enforcement and stepping it up. And uh, I personally, like, I don't understand why Amazon has not been why it's just not obvious that Amazon should be broken up. Like, I mean, the whole 
thing where, you know, oh, this product is selling a lot. Well, now we make it. I mean, like, how is that okay? How is that in any way uh, anything but anti-competitive? Like, that's just like my view, which is why I'm so skeptical of the idea that Republicans are coming on board. Now, I recognize that Republicans are coming on board because initially they're just really mad that they don't think that it's fair that uh, platforms like Facebook eventually cave to pressure to actually try and be responsible and not put out things that can get people killed. I get that that's kind of how they ended up at the table. So that makes it a little hard to take it seriously, but it also makes me feel like we ought to try to capitalize on it. If it happened for real, it would be great. I think that what it succeeding relies upon is other big business entities benefiting from the weakening of big tech companies, right? Because that's at the end of the day, that's still a major constituency of the Republicans. So, you know, we can't rely on the right to rein in big business. But we might be able to rely on them to rein in giant business at the behest of big business. So like a super powerful Amazon, I don't think is necessarily good if you're Walmart or Nike, for instance. And so maybe that's the path. This antitrust stuff dovetails with our conversation about the courts. Like, why has the U.S. been so anemic in enforcing antitrust laws, in part because starting in the 70s with Robert Bork, who was a federal judge who almost made it on the Supreme Court, We've redefined antitrust enforcement. It used to be that if you consolidated power within an industry, we broke you up. Then we started applying this consumer welfare standard, which said the most important factor is whether prices go up or down because of your power. So if you're Amazon and because of your consolidation, at least in the short term, the prices are going down, then we're not going to break you up because it doesn't hurt the consumer. And that has basically been the jurisprudence ever since, especially since the conservatives have been dominating the courts. So the same people who claim that, that they want to beef up antitrust enforcement have been responsible for a judiciary that has gotten us to the place that we are today. It's such a bad situation that even if you apply their standard, they're not even applying their own standard of consumer welfare. So there's this professor at NYU, Thomas Philippon, who wrote a book a couple years ago where he looked at a bunch of different industries and he was like, why, for instance, is broadband so much more expensive in the United States than anywhere else? And he came up with the conclusion that it's because there's a lack of competition. And he did the same thing with airlines. He did it with your cell phone companies. And there are others like Lena Khan, who is just um, confirmed uh, as basically Biden's antitrust enforcer, who's young, very young, I think, who wrote a paper that was looking at Amazon and how they crushed this company called Quidzy, which is a diaper company. And basically, Amazon just, they just lowered their prices temporarily and basically drove out this competitor, crushed them, and then took over the industry. And like anything else, like people, like you notice, for instance, Uber's prices, everybody around the country, Uber's prices are now way up. Like that's what these companies do. They drive down prices in the short term. You cannot trust that they're going to keep prices down in the long term. And even if they did, it's not the only consideration. How powerful is a company? What does it mean for workers, right? What does it mean for innovation? What does it mean for free speech when we're talking about tech companies? So these are things that I think we need to worry about. Well, and I think politically, like for our listeners, I think it is in our interest to make this a, a regular conversation piece around Father's Day, July 4th, whatever table, because for the left, I think it makes a lot of sense to move this into the mainstream as sort of a litmus test for voters, right? Because at the end of the day, this is it's populism and it's progressive populism because what it is, is it's like, hey, the big actors, the big corporate actors, they are, and I believe this is true, to blame for a lot of the plight 
of the middle class. All of this has to do with the um, centralization of corporate power, right? Why you're not getting paid better wages, that kind of thing. Well, if we can make that a thing that both parties now agree is something that needs to be tackled, well, that would be A, great for the country, B, great for our party, because now one of the major pieces of turf we're going to fight over is something where we have a distinct advantage because we actually want to be there and we actually want to do stuff, right? So I think it makes perfect sense to move this right into the center of, of the American political debate. Yeah, and here's one area where we need to be very careful, which is Republicans are very focused on big tech because they view big tech as liberal and they have been protecting other companies. So, you know, the telecom companies, you know, your paper manufacturer, the airlines, whatever, like they're the Republicans are the party that have been protecting all those other industries. But I don't trust that um, this is being done for the right reasons. Now, it doesn't mean we can't strike a good bargain, but we need to be really careful about what we're dealing with across the table. Josh Hawley is a great example. He is obsessed with the laws regulating corporate liability for speech on their platforms and requirements that they provide a certain sense of balance. And in his world, he wants to require social media companies to provide what he views as balance, which essentially means actively promoting conservative voices as I read it. We need to be careful about that because there are people on the left who who buy into some of the premises, not realizing the world that he wants to take us to. Uh, and so there's a, this is a little tangled. Um, and I worry that um, we could enter into a deal with the devil here uh, where the details are not in our favor. Well, and I think the thing we have to remind people of as we sort of try to bring this into the into the mainstream of American political debate is that people like Josh Hawley are concerned about how large corporate monopolies affect Josh Hawley, because he's not talking about the way the workers are treated. He's not talking about the way it affects wages, the way it affects anything like that. He's talking about the way it affects politicians and his political party. And what we can't do, the trap we can't fall into, is to argue with him about that. I think we should say, yeah, you know what? Amazon should be a bunch of little Amazons. It should be what was done with the bells, right? It should be, uh, you know, all that stuff, right? And why is Walmart allowed to move into a community, come in with bargain basement prices and just destroy every mom and pop hardware store and everything else and then bring their prices back up? Why is that allowed to, be, to happen in real life as well as online? Like, so it's not, well, you say this, but it's okay, fine. And, and if they can't meet us at and, well, then they are proving themselves inadequate on the issue. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday about how amazing it is when you work with a good therapist, just how incredibly smart they are. And what we were talking about in this case, it was a, a fellow veteran who has gotten treatment for post-traumatic stress. It turns out we brought the same issue to a therapist. And in both cases, they quickly gave us an explanation that we never would have thought of, which brings me to our sponsor, BetterHelp. It really democratizes and just proliferates the ability of people to get good counseling. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can connect in a safe and private online environment. And it's so convenient, you could start communicating in under 48 hours. And you could send a message to your counselor anytime, and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions 
all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. They have licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, stress, anxiety, and more. And anything you share is confidential and is convenient, professional, and affordable. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com M54. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash M54. In this week in misinformation, we're going to talk about QAnon. The FBI just issued a report that says that QAnon supporters now are growing disenchanted with, I guess, Q, I guess is what the point here is. It's saying that Q is wrong about a whole lot of stuff. Now, you may be surprised, Jason, to hear that a lot of these supporters aren't then reevaluating their own um, themselves and saying, why was I duped by this? But instead they're saying, now I need to take this into my own hands. Now, obviously this is not a blanket statement about all QAnon supporters. I'm sure there are some people who've reevaluated their views, but what the FBI says in this report is that there is a dangerous amount of people who are going to go out there and potentially commit violence. And they put out a succinct report and it's worth reading. It's only two pages and they have a super succinct clear and compelling description of what QAnon is, which I just recommend for people who are constantly confused by this ever-evolving conspiracy theory. But then they go through and talk about why is this a threat. So they say that 20 self-identified QAnon supporters participated in the January 6th uh, unlawful entry riot into the Capitol. They then talk about other incidents that have been happening around the country um, perpetrated by QAnon supporters. Um, And this comes as we have a ton of people Uh, in our public life, an increasing number of people running for office, in some cases winning, who are QAnon supporters. Jason, as we said, like, we we didn't have Al-Qaeda sympathizers running in the aftermath of um, 2001. This is not just a national security issue. This is a political issue. There are people running for office who espouse this ideology. It makes it different than the international issue we were facing before. That means that we all have to play a part because it has to do with discourse, not just law enforcement. What does that mean for in practice for you? Well, in practice, to me, what it means is like we can no longer do this instinctual thing that's like, well, if we don't acknowledge conspiracy theories, sort of like a fire that we don't give oxygen to, that's not how it works. Like, I don't think they're looking for attention from us, right? Like, I don't think that's what they're seeking. You got to take it really seriously because to me, it's like, This is like basic off-brand right-wing extremism and possible terrorism under another label, right? I mean, yeah, it's QAnon, but it's like it's the same people who gravitate toward it. I mean, using the example from earlier, like in Afghanistan, there are people who were Al-Qaeda sympathizers who then became, uh, you know, Hezbi-Islami Gouldin sympathizers who were part of the Haqqani network who were like – they were terrorists. They they were extremists. And they gravitated from one extremist thing to another extremist thing for whatever reason. Maybe it was passed on to them. Maybe it was something going on in their life. Who knows, right? But to me, it's like you can't you can't ignore it. You gotta take it head on. And politically as well. Like I I think we're right to make it an attack on the right and force them to disavow it. Yeah, I, I think about where we're heading now, right? We've come out of this period of time, a year plus, where people have been inside, which has probably stoked this fire. So we have an opportunity and there's a risk. The opportunity is that people are going to be outside more. You're, you're going to be interacting more with other people, which hopefully quells this need to go down these rabbit holes on the internet. 
But at the same time, we all know that summer is when things happen. It's when more violent acts happen across the country as a whole. And people emerging from their, you know, metaphorical, in some cases, real life basements um, could also mean they emerge to do some of these bad things that the FBI is concerned about. And I was just looking at this. I, I was I was trying to collect information and say, all right, what is this QAnon threat? Like, is this a cute little sideshow or is this a a growing threat to all of us. And the data is really scary. So in December, NPR, Ipsos did a poll. It says one in three Americans believe in some element of the QAnon conspiracy theory. The American Enterprise Institute found that 29% of Republicans agreed that Trump, quote, has been secretly fighting a group of child sex traffickers that include prominent Democrats and Hollywood elites. Uh, now, I could pause there and say, maybe they just say this because they're trying to signal to the pollster something. But that's what we said before the Capitol riot. Remember when we have these conversations, it's like, if you believe these things that the election was stolen, wouldn't you take up arms? Remember when we were saying that? And then they did. So we should probably take them at face value there. And then you have tons of people running for office who believe this, two of whom were elected to Congress last time. And you have many, many more running now. And it's not just Congress. Um, there's a great Time Magazine article about this student named Lewis, uh, Lucas Hartwell in Grand Blanc, I hope I'm saying that correct, Michigan, who just discovered on his own, and we should have this kid on our podcast. He sounds great. He discovered on his own that his school board member was a QAnon conspiracy theorist and then was like, man, this is scary. And he tried to get his town to take it seriously. And they, to, to my knowledge, so far haven't as of the writing. Oh, of that we got to have here. him on. Yeah. So if um, somebody knows him, connect us and we'll have him on. I'd like to light that up. And it goes without saying that this is something that goes to the highest levels of government. So Trump, when we, when pressed to disavow QAnon, he called their followers, quote, people that love our country. And his son, Eric, posted a giant Q. Uh, and then he gave the rallying cry, where we go one, we go all on Instagram, which is a terrible you know, rallying cry. I know, but can, it, well, can we then apply that to the country as a whole? Like this is the same group of people that demonize, you know, 50 plus percent, 54 percent of Americans. I'm just saying what a it's weak crazy. ass knockoff rallying cry. Like anyway, uncreative. Well, I mean, you remember there was that memo prior to 9-11, uh, you know, uh, Al-Qaeda determined to attack within the United States. And it was a major controversy for years, like whether or not to hold the Bush administration accountable for the fact that that there was this memo. And it was in the, P the presidential daily brief and should more have been done. Now, imagine instead the memo had said 29% of Americans think Osama bin Laden is right. Or 29% of Republicans. Like, and that was like in May of 2001. Like, that's where we are uh, with this. And so, yeah, it should be taken extremely seriously. In the formerly called Quarantine Corner, which is now Aren't We Relatable Corner, Jason, what's been happening in your life outside of politics? Well, in the vein of this shifting from quarantine corner to aren't we relatable corner, I have something right in that space, which is I've come to the conclusion that it might be time for me to once again start shaving more than once a week. I'm pretty upset about it. I've come to this conclusion because my wife has told me that it might be time for me to start once again shaving more than once a week. And uh, I'm going to do it, but uh, it's going to be difficult. So... That's all. <laughs> well, I got I had two quick ones. One is I talked last week about the Brooklyn Nets, who I, I like to troll. Um, and I was actually invited to go to the game last night. 
uh, here in, in New York. And although I, I was rooting against them, which is weird because I was actually literally everybody around me is new to, to New York. And people are like, why are you rooting for the Bucks? Are you from Milwaukee? I was like, no, actually, I was I was born in Brooklyn. There's just no <laughs> people are so confused as to what was going on. And if you ever want to know, if you if you if you don't know fully why I, I I'm against the Brooklyn Nets, we'll talk about it another time, listeners. But I would have to say that it was wonderful to see a packed stadium, super energetic, and on a sports side of things, it was a historic night. Kevin Durant um, had I think the best uh, game of his career, so it was just cool to be out and about. Were you like the Russian crowd in Rocky Four? Like at some point, was Durant having the kind of night where you couldn't help? You know, you started like cheering for him. <laughs> you know, it was weird. You know, it's not like rooting for you know for you in case of uh, your football team and me with the Bills. It's like when they lose, I like am devastated. Whereas like if I'm just rooting against somebody, I'm not that motivated by it. And all my friends were happy, which made me kind of happy. And it was just cool to be there for history. But, but I mean, like it's, it, I guess maybe the better analogy is when you go to see even your hometown team and, and you're rooting for them. But then in the eighth inning, when you realize the opposing pitcher has a no hitter going, you're like, no, I would kind of like to see a no hitter. Yeah, I never do that. If it's okay. the team I'm rooting for. Yeah. yeah. If, if it's the team I'm rooting for, I never root for the other team. Right, like it doesn't fair. matter if they're walking on water or, you know, you know, flying through the air. I don't care. It's it's you know, you root for your team. Cuz the but, only uh, two examples of that I can think of are I, I went to a game and I got to see Paul Molitor's 3000th hit and he was playing the Royals and I did want to see him get that hit, right? I remember that. And then every time I rewatched the movie Moneyball, the people don't maybe notice that the big comeback scene in Moneyball is actually against the Royals and it features several oh. players I grew up rooting for. And it is a strange feeling, but you know, you're by that point you're, you're bought in to the athletics of the good guy in that movie. And so I, I mostly will, will root for them, but that's it. Yeah, no. It, what was cool about it though, from to the sort of the, the, the seriousness of it, I was in a vaccinated only section and they were like, first of all, we've become so efficient as a society of sorting people out this way. And it was just cool because like, you could then take off your mask in that section and cheer and all that. Did you have to show like your card? Yeah. Brought my, ah, my card a real vaccine yeah. passport in yeah, real life, yeah. in the wild. Yeah. And I was thinking about, we were talking about last week or the week before, like what are the use cases of the vaccine passport? I think stadiums are a big one um, because obviously like you, if you get that wrong, yeah. that becomes a super spreader event. People are screaming in the stadium so it's like a huge risk if you're not careful but it was it was awesome to see my other thing though very quickly is we have a lot of listeners from missouri i'm coming to kansas city next week please dm me on instagram at ravi m gupta if you have suggestions about what we should be doing with our time i'm gonna be there for a few days like recommendations obviously jason and diana are going to give me recommendations but i want to hear from you listeners too send me send me ideas of where we should go and it could be breakfast places, evening establishments, but not those kind of evening establishments, barbecue places, lunch, whatever, a park, like anything. Be creative. Um, I want to see your city. I, I would add, don't DM him, like tag him and tag me too, because I'm curious there to see go. what, uh, that's one thing Kansas Cityans do love to do, which is tell people, yeah, we, we are excellent hosts. So I would like to see people get on Instagram and, and make recommendations to Robbie. That is a, that is a good call. All right, Ravi, for grabbing ore, what shall we do? All right. Well, I know that we have a lot of listeners in New York City and a lot of people who just care about this election coming up. There are not a lot of elections this year. 
across the United States. And so, you know, what happens in New York is actually really important. And we're already in the election right now. People are actually voting right now and, and election days in a few weeks for mayor, city council, borough president's offices, district attorney's races, et cetera. Uh, and so I usually spend a lot of time on this stuff in my day job, but because I've stepped away from arena, I've taken a, a lot longer than I normally do to just come up with a theory about how people should think about the election. So uh, I'm going to give some thoughts on Instagram next week um, on, I guess, what do you call it, Jason? Like Instagram? Oh, like um, IGTV? There you go, IGTV. I'm going to do one of those where I just explain a few things about just how I see the race. And it's just my perspective as somebody who was born and raised here and spent a lot of time here. And also, I'll try to talk about what I think it means for the country as a whole, because um, obviously, like a race this year can say a whole lot about post-pandemic life in America. So I'll put something up. Uh, and if people want to follow me, I'm at Ravi M. Gupta again. And isn't this ranked choice voting? Oh, yeah. And I'll talk about what that means, because like in some cases, you'll hear me talk about multiple candidates, which is cool, because Jason, like you, I have a lot of people coming through my door asking for support. And sometimes I like them, but not as much as somebody else for one reason or another. And it'll be cool to be able to say, well, I like this person the most, but these other people are actually pretty cool too. And so that'll be fun to say. And I'll, and the mechanism is a little confusing, but from the voter's perspective, you just basically put people in order and that's it. Don't try to think too much about it. Well, I was just going to say, like, even if you're not a New Yorker, I think you might find uh, Ravi's theorizing about it interesting because of the ranked choice voting aspect of it. All right. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Just a reminder that if you're listening to this the day it comes out Thursday, that a week from today, you could be like hanging out with us while we do this uh, in Kansas City. And if you're not in Kansas City, you could still be doing that uh, because Kansas City is a lovely place and you should come here and hang out on Thursday, do the event, and then make a weekend out of it. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours to Today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.